My name is Ronald. I'm not Pastor Keith. I have the joy of serving this church. And, um, and good morning. What an incredible worship service we've had, huh? The songs we sang celebrated the work of Christ in all our lives. The baptisms we experienced celebrated the work of life, uh, the work of Christ in our brothers and sisters' lives. So grateful for some of the testimonies. Um, so grateful for you parents that have been leading your children faithfully, and we saw the fruit of your leadership. Uh, Frank, grateful for you, brother. It's almost every where are you? There you are. Almost every time there's a baptism, your name comes up. Um, brother, thank you for being faithful to responding to God, um, to giving us an example of what faithfulness looks like. The, the glory is the Lord's, we understand that, but thank you, brother. Th- thank you for your faithfulness. Well, if you're just joining us today, we are, uh, we've been in a series called Summer Bible Jam. If this is your first time with us, maybe you've had vacation, we're out of town a couple Sundays ago. Uh, We are continuing the series, our yearly teaching series called Summer Bible Jam. And and this is an an annual quest that we do. We take as a church that is intended to strengthen personal Bible reading and to deepen our love and enjoyment of the scriptures. Our hope by by emphasizing um, scripture reading is that as, as we spend time reading the Bible, systematically understanding it, learning from it, Our hope is that our faith, your faith, will grow. The Apostle Paul told Timothy to fan into flame his gift of faith. And and to do that, he told them to follow the pattern of the sound words he had heard. So there's a direct connection between uh, the growth of your faith and the time you spend in God's word. And and our desire is to see your faith grow. As you experience more of God in His Word, our hope is that your faith turns into a roaring fire, that it is fanned into flame, into this monstrosity of faith. So this year, Pastor Keith led us to consider the lives of individual people in the Bible, their struggles, their their particular wrestlings with God, their their moments of of spiritual strength, moments of victory, moments of sin and defeat. And um, we call these character studies. We're in the first character study. Uh, study ends today on the person and life of David. So all, for the rest of the summer, we're going to look at individual characters of Scripture and, and, and look at what God did in their lives and see how, how, what we can learn from God's work in their lives. As I said, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at King David. Um, we started with King David. He's arguably, uh, arguably the most important character in the Old Testament. And two weeks ago, when we started the series, um, we looked at the good David. We looked at um, the young, humble, faithful shepherd boy who, who burned with zeal for the honor and glory of God's name. We, we saw how much he trusted God, that, that he trusted God so much that here's his young kid, enters an active military zone, challenges a giant who's wielding a weapon that's bigger and heavier than he is. All he takes to the battle is a slingshot and a stone and winds up defeating this giant with the Lord's help. 
David's greatness is so celebrated by God himself that God gives him a compliment given unto no other person in the entire scriptures. A man after my own heart. That was two weeks ago. Last week we looked at the bad David. That same young, maybe not so young, maybe not so humble, maybe not so faithful, no longer shepherd boy. At this point in the story, he's a king. He's the king of Israel. We saw a different side of him. Inside this man who followed after God's own heart was a wicked heart, an evil heart, a lustful, murderous heart. That same man that, that two weeks ago trusted God to use his hands to slay a wicked giant was the same man who used those very hands to murder a godly and innocent man. That same man that two weeks ago, whose heart burned with zeal for God's glory and honor, was the same man that last week, his heart burned with lust and was led by that heart into sexual immorality and defilement. And today we're going to finish up David's story. But, But is there more to his story As we approach David and as we approach the rest of the characters we're going to be looking at this summer, what are we meaning to learn from their stories? Is is, is there more to David's story than just the good David versus the bad David? Do, Do we approach his life and the narratives about David in scripture like this? Okay, I'll try and be like the good David and I'll stay away from being the bad David. Is that it? Here's a helpful thought by George Guthrie and Bruce Walkey in their book, Read the Bible for Life. They say, as we read the Old Testament stories, we need to keep in mind, first of all, that these stories have God as the main actor. We need to ask the question, what is this story revealing about God? When we are reading about Adam and Eve or Joshua and Jericho or David and Goliath, we need to remember that we are not nor are the characters themselves the main point of those stories. At the same time, these stories are meant to connect with us as human beings. These stories often have at their core the struggles of people to believe God, to trust Him. And I think we all face those struggles. So the stories ring true for us. We struggle to live by faith, and sometimes in a climactic moment of our own stories... We find the reality of God's presence with us in the midst of our own difficulties. Just as the characters in the Old Testament did. So the passage we're looking at this morning helps us do just that. It helps turn our eyes away from ourselves and and, and even away from the characters of these stories. We're going to look through the life of David to see God behind the life of David. David. So this morning I want to consider God's great purpose for and through David. We're going to learn from David's example. There's still a couple of lessons to be learned from his example, but we're also going to see God's purpose in David. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read the first verses of this passage, and then we will pray. 
Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Join me in prayer. Father, be with us this morning. Impress the truth of your scriptures to our hearts. Help us learn. Help us follow. Change us, we pray. In your name. Amen. So quick recap. What do we know about David up to this point? The earlier chapters of 2 Samuel, David was anointed king of Israel. Israel at, the, uh, at that point had, had just wanted to be like the rest of the pagan nations around them. They, they had desired to have someone rule over them. And, and they, they chose this man by the name of Saul. And Saul turned up, turned up to be a bad idea. But David at this point is anointed king first by the tribe of Judah and then by the rest of the people of Israel. And for the first time in Israel's history and through David's leadership... Israel conquers the city of Jerusalem and makes the city of Jerusalem Israel's capital city. And just before that, David brings the Ark of the Covenant. Again, meant to represent the very presence and the very symbol of God as king over Israel to the city of Jerusalem. So, the passage we read begins, Now when the king lived in his house, speaking of David, and the Lord had given him rest... From all his surrounding enemies. There's been a lot of fighting. There's been a lot of conquering. And at this point in the story, it's all good. Everything's good. Israel has, it lives in a moment of peace. And if you look at the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 and 14, there's a particular phrase that's repeated. 2 Samuel 8, 6 reads, Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Jump down to verse 14, the uh, tail end of that verse. Again, that phrase. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So a a first lesson that begins to be hinted at here is that we ought to be like David. So be like David. Lead God's people to blessings. There's plenty I could say to qualify that statement. I mean, who are God's people? What type of blessings are we talking about? When are people blessed? Are we always blessed? What is the magnitude of our blessings? Are these kind of one-on-one transactions with God? Those are all altogether different sermons. It's one of the frustrating things about preaching that you can't say everything about everything. Um, that might not seem the case to you guys. Sometimes it feels with the length of our sermons that we are in fact saying everything about everything. But at this point, be like David. Be like him. Lead God's people to blessings. David was a blessed man. 
Everything David did, everything he touched turned to gold. Everyone he fought, he beat. Everyone around him that hated his guts and wanted him dead wound up surrendering to him or becoming his servant. David was a blessed man, but he wasn't just a blessed man. David was a man that blessed others. He led faithfully and exercised authority rightly and righteously. And in the process, he blessed others because he was a good king. 2 Samuel 8 verse 15 says it this way, So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. David recognizes this. And at the very end of his life, before he dies, he writes a song. And here are some of the words of that song. This is the very end of his life, 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men... Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful image this is. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. You imagine if we had, we had governors, mayors, Supreme Court justices, senators, presidents that ruled us in the fear of God. Now I know 4th of July is right around the corner. We're Americans. No one rules over us. We, we, we elect those people. They work for us. I mean, I, I, I get it. But you know what I mean. Can you imagine if... People in place, in places of authority. Can you imagine if they used that authority in the fear of the Lord? Can you imagine what people in authority would look like? What the people under the people in authority would look like if those in authority looked like David? Now, do you realize that that is how God is blessing his people? David's just and righteous authority is the means through which God is blessing the people of Israel. He dawns on them like the morning light. He's guiding them into light and not darkness. He's influencing them to walk in the ways of the Lord and not away from the ways of the Lord. There's something... There's something unique about the light of the morning. We, we, we are drawn to it. It, it, it seems clear. It seems more, more refreshing than, than, than the light during the rest of the day. There's something about the sunrise. There's something, there's something about that, that evokes life in us. When, when, when the, the light of the morning pierces the darkness of the night. It, it, it brings vitality. It brings awakenedness. It brings energy and life. And this is how David is described as how he is blessing the people through his leadership. Now, now, who is doing this blessing? Is God blessing the people of Israel? 
Or is David blessing the people of Israel? The answer is yes. Ultimately, God is the one leading David. But, but, but the instrument he is using is David. And have you considered the powerful witness that you can have in wielding authority well? If you're a parent, do you understand the opportunity you have to show your children what God is like by the way you use authority over them? Husbands, employers, teachers, elders of this church, coaches, business owners, managers. When you exercise authority over people in the fear of the Lord, do you realize the opportunity you have to display a right witness of God when you lead them in that way? You bless people. You bless them doubly. One, by leading them well, they're going to flourish, their gifts are going to be enhanced. But they're also blessed by you leading them to God through your example. And, and, and that's what David did. As he led Israel well, as he led Israel well, he led Israel to worship. Not himself, but the God that was using him. The God behind the blessing. The blessings God was giving Israel through David were the breadcrumbs leading to the feast of riches that was God himself. So early on in this passage, this is the first hint of a lesson. Be like David. Use David as an example in leadership and authority. Bless people with your leadership. Look at verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So God had given David rest. Wartime is over. Why is wartime over? Because through David, God had laid the smackdown on everyone around Israel. Everyone. No one dare came before Israel because if they did, Israel would beat them. He had rest over his enemy. The fighting ended. Peace had come to Israel. So what's David doing during peace time? Can you imagine what, what, what if you're king and, and you, you have led this nation faithfully following God to victory after victory after victory and you can't have any more victory because there's no more fights to be had. It's just everything's done. What would you be doing? I picture David and his palace kicking back with a cold glass of sweet tea in one hand other hand dipping into a bowl of chips flip-flops on his feet maybe he's wearing a bathrobe i know watching something on netflix i don't know he's just kind of just kind of laying around just he's he's chilling he's hey nothing left to do he has rest but look at what the text says he's doing He approaches Nathan the prophet and says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Listen to this thought by A.W. Pink. He says, And what was David's mind employed during the hour of repose? 
Not upon worldly trifles or fleshly indulgences, but with the honor of God. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This is very blessed and furnishes a true insight to the character of him whom the Lord himself declared to be a man after his own heart. There are few things which afford a surer index to our spirituality or lack of it than how we are engaged in our hours of leisure. When the conflict is over and the sword is laid down, we are very apt to relax and become careless about spiritual concerns. And then it is, while off our guard, that Satan so often succeeds in gaining an advantage over us. How this too reveals David's heart. Instead of being occupied with his achievements and self-satisfied with the position which he now occupied, David was concerned about the lowly abode of God's ark. Very beautiful indeed it is, is it to see the recently crowned monarch solicitous, I added this parenthesis because I don't know what that word meant, being interested in, not for the honor of his own majesty, but for the glory of him whom he served. Do you see what's happening there? David is not wasting time. David is in recreation mode. But he is practicing recreation that recreates. In a time of leisure, David is thinking about the things of God. So here's a second hint of a lesson we get from this passage and from David. Be like David. Think about God at all times. He is troubled to see himself in a better condition than the Lord. Now, the, the Lord's going to say some things about what, what his valuing of, of what's actually happening. But nonetheless, there's, there's genuine concern for God's honor. And, and notice, this concern, this mindfulness is taking place when there's nothing else to think about. There's nothing else occupying David's mind. There's no discernible need David is aware of. Nothing is jumping to the forefront of David's mind in terms of a need before the Lord, a request, a trial, a pain, a sickness. Everything is calm and collected. And at this point in his mind, he is thinking of the Lord. David is thinking about God when he's not in need. God has met all his needs Yet David is still thinking about God. Now why is that important for us? See, sometimes we, we only think of God when we need something from Him. When our world is caving in, when, when diagnosis of a sickness shows up, when we lose our jobs, when someone we love hurts us, betrays us, when we experience the pain and brokenness of this world... We come to God. Now, Scripture teaches that we can and we should come to God in those conditions. This is the same man we're talking about. Psalm Psalm 63, David writes this song and expresses that idea. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's not experiencing those realities when he's writing this song. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. This is a beautiful psalm. This is a psalm that every person in this room should know deeply. Memorize this psalm. Pray through this psalm. Meditate on this psalm night and day. But don't just come to this psalm when you're in need. Now, notice the heading of the psalm. Some of the psalms have these helpful headings that the writer of these psalms give us insight into what's happening. Not all of them, but they they kind of give us a quick phrase of when so-and-so happened, this psalm was written then. The heading of the psalm reads, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David writes this psalm during one of the most excruciating experiences of his life. And, and we need psalms like that one. And that's the, that's the beauty of a psalm like this one. That God blesses us by giving us words to say when we can't find words to pray. That's why we come to psalms like Psalm 63. But God never meant to have us come to him or to think about him only when we are in need. As a matter of fact, the psalm I just read to you says that. David himself testifies to that in verse 4. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So, another example we can observe in David. Something else we can look to David and follow. Be like David. Think about God at all times. Now, at this point in the sermon, we're going to take a sharp 90 degree turn. We're going to quickly shift from David's examples to something else. The primary reason for why we're looking at David is what we're going to talk about next. Now, I'm not doing this because I'm a creative sermon writer. I'm not doing this because I want it to be different. That's what happens in the text. So let's read that text again and look at what happens in verse 4. So this is 2 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Yes, it just sounds good and, and complete, and, and, and it just sounds like, right, there's nothing wrong. Now look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. 
In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It sounds like God's getting ready to do something. Doesn't it? It sounds like David's story is more. That there's more to it. That there's more behind David's story than David. God's getting ready to do something. Underline the, to- the number of times God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's declaring purposes for what's to come. This is an incredibly important passage in the Old Testament that helps develop God's storyline of redemption from the fall of Adam and Eve to the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ to the return of Christ to the end of ages. God here is establishing a covenant with David. Covenant is just an agreement. It's, it's a binding agreement. Think, think of a contract, a legal contract that's... Basically, between two parties, that's basically what a covenant is. And and in this passage, God is establishing a covenant with David. Notice that God is the one initiating this covenant. And notice that God is not really asking for collateral. He's not really asking for assurances. God is saying, I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. The Lord is is on the verge of unleashing something. Now, it's interesting that that God establishes this covenant with David, and and he does so with a little bit of humor and and, and a play on words. So David wants to build God a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. The the word house in Hebrew is bayit. But the word bayit can also mean temple, it can mean um, lineage, it can mean like, 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 like the house of Ronald, like, like you know, people under my house, like my family, my, my, my dynasty or whatnot. Listen to this all by Mark Boda. He says, at first, Nathan expressed his approval in the unspoken desires of David. 
But during the night, the prophet received word from the Lord for the king. God turned the tables on David, who, sitting in his own completed house, Bayit, wanted to build a house, temple, for God. Instead, the Lord declared that he would establish a house, dynasty, for David. And that the next member of that dynasty would build him a house, a temple for God. Now, why is any of that relevant to us? So what, Ronald? You find that a Hebrew word can mean different things. Great. Why is this relevant to us? What does this matter? Because this covenant God has made with David has massive implications to our lives and our faith in God. God is promising something to David, but he is promising something not just to David. He is promising something that will endure forever. He is promising David he will unleash and establish a a kingdom that will rule forever. Think about that. David's not an eternal creature, is he? David will die at some point. So what is going on? Three times in verse 14 and in verse 17, God makes the claim that David's kingdom will rule forever. Not just as long as David lives. Not even just as long as David's offspring live. But forever. God's purpose for this covenant includes more than a promise that that David's going to have a really long line of kings after him. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is promising David that he, that God will intervene himself. I'm going to show up, David. I'm going to be there, David. I'm going to make something great of your life and your future and your kingdom, David. There's something that's to come after you, David, and I will do it. You're going to see my hand displayed throughout history, David. You're going to see my work, the purpose of redemptive history, come to fruition through your kingdom, David. I will do it. That's what's happening here. This is the covenant that God is making with David. You, 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 you can see some of these hints of, of the future that's to come. Look at verse 14. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. That's in reference to Solomon. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul takes that verse and applies it to believers. God is promising himself in this covenant. He's declaring his great purpose for David. He's saying, David, through your kingdom, I will establish my kingdom. And secure not only your future, but the future salvation of my people. The Old Testament spells this out. The Old Testament develops this idea. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel continue to develop this thought. 
Ezekiel looks to the future salvation of God's people and prophesies in Ezekiel 37. He says, but I will save my people from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. How? My servant David shall be king over them. Wait a minute. David's dead. And they shall have one shepherd. Do you see the hint? Jeremiah prophesied it this way. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And get this, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What did 2 Samuel chapter 8 tell us about how David ruled Israel? He exercised justice, right? He exercised righteousness. Somebody is being promised that will do that, not just to Israel, but to all of God's people. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But it is the prophet Isaiah who sees the glory of the one to come more clearly than anyone. Identifies him. Gives him a name that should ring really familiar to you. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forever. More. So I ask again, why is this relevant to us? Let me read two more passages, this time in the New Testament. This is Luke chapter 1. We're having Christmas in the summer. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house, there's that word, of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, she's scared out of her mind. That's what that translates to. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. That's how I know she was scared, as the angel tells her, Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Matthew adds one more detail. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he 
will save his people from their sins. This is relevant to us for at least one primary reason. The life of David is not a series of stories that help us experience better lives by looking to David as an example of how we are to live our lives. There's a place for that. There's a lot in David that we can learn. But that's not the most relevant thing about David. The life of David is a series of stories that point us to one who can give us not better lives, eternal life. That person is Christ. God's great purpose is that we would come to know him as our Lord and King. But we, like David, have sinned against him. This is why God took on flesh and became a man, lived a perfect life, and died as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And this is what he's calling us to do today, to repent and to trust the son of David. To trust Jesus, the one who would sit on David's throne and rule in justice and equity forever. To receive the blessing of his authority over our lives. God's great purpose in David's life is a covenant, a promise. God is giving someone a promise. A promise of forgiveness and love for those who would come under the reign of God and his kingdom. Eric, you can come up here. (laughs) As you are. That was my cue to cut it, by the way. So, let's, let's wrap this up. What do we take away from three sermons on the life of David? How do we, how do we summarize three sermons on David's life? And, and looking forward to some of the next characters we're going to study, what, what, what do we learn from them? This is not in your notes, so you might want to need, write these down. Four things. First one is learn from David's strengths. Learn from David's strengths. There's much to learn about David's leadership skills, his faith, his humility, his earnestness to seek the Lord. We would do well to follow David's example in many categories of life. I'll give you one, a really big important one. When David had victory, he went to the Lord. When David had defeat, he went to the Lord. When David lived a life of purity and holiness, he went to the Lord. When David sinned, he went to the Lord. When he was provided for, he went to the Lord. When he was in need, he went to the Lord. David's default impulse in life was to go to the Lord. Friend, there is huge blessings in that. Christian, there is no time. There is no place, there is no moment in your life where if you are under Christ, that you cannot go to the Lord. The Lord welcomes you to his presence at all times. That's one of the lessons we can generally learn about David. Lesson number two. So, learn from his strengths. 
Lesson number two, learn from David's weaknesses. Possibly the biggest lesson you learn from David is this. The man after God's own heart has a wicked heart inside of him. Don't underestimate your ability to do evil. To hurt those you love. To rebel against God. We are probably more capable of doing the evil things that David did than having those incredible victories that David experienced. Now, why would I say that? One of the most frightening passages in Scripture to me is Genesis chapter 8. After God has judged the wickedness of the world by sending a global flood to destroy all life on earth, but one righteous man and his family. And after he, 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 he extends a covenant, another promise to never do it again, he seals his covenant with a rainbow. This is what the Lord says. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen to this. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? I thought all the evil people died. No. You know why there's still evil in the world? Because there's people in the world. That's a sobering lesson. So, lesson number one, learn from David's strengths. Learn from David's weaknesses. Lesson number three, as you're reading these stories, as you're reading these narratives, as you've been encountered David's story, ask this primary question. What is God doing? David's story is part of a larger story. It's part of a greater story. God is weaving his plan of redemption and using the lives of people like David, and specifically David, as pages in the book he's writing. So ask yourself the question, what is God doing? What is God communicating about himself as you read these stories? And finally, last thing, ask What has God done? Learn from David's strengths. Learn from David's weaknesses. Ask, what is God doing? But ask, what has God done? Did you notice when 2 Samuel 7 takes place? Pastor Keith preached last week. He's preaching again today, I guess. He preached again, he preached last week, and he preached on 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's spiral into sin and defilement, and we encounter the bad David. The earlier chapters of 2 Samuel, David's this super awesome dude. Chapters 8 through 10, we, 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 we get a list. We, we, we're told this is how many people David got into a fight and beat. I mean, he's just, just this guy's amazing. It's like, that's the guy you want on your team. I want David on my team. 
And then chapter 11 comes in. The axe falls. Boom. This guy is wicked. When does Samuel chapter 7 take place? When does God speak his covenant with David? He does so before David does all his sinning. And here's a question I have for you guys. Did God remove his covenant from David? Did God say, no, David, deal's off, dude. I'm sorry, David, you screwed up. I'm sorry, man. I had something for you. There's this contract here, look at it. Look at this contract, David, look. You messed up, man, sorry, I'm going to rip it up. Did God do that? No. In spite of David's faithlessness, God showed his faithfulness. God does not go back on his covenant. This is what God has done. God is faithful when we are faithless. So we learn from this that when God makes a promise, God keeps his promises. And there is one promise he makes in this passage. He says, my steadfast love will not depart. I'm going to read to you the end of the story. And we'll be done with this. This is not the end of the story of David. This is the end of the story. Like the end of it all. This is not a couple years after the life of David. This is the end of time itself. And I want you to listen to how God fulfills his promise to his people. I want you to listen how God keeps his steadfast love and makes sure it does not depart. This is Revelation chapter 21. The apostle says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. David, you can't build me a house. Because I'm making one myself. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that king, the one sitting on David's throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is the eternal purpose of God through David. 
He is preparing a line for one who would come and by his work make us the very sons and daughters of the king. Would you pray with me? Father, we could not have imagined such a story. Where you would show your power through millennia of human history. You would weave your plan of salvation through the lives of many who have come before. And Lord, how often we miss the blessing of being ruled by your Son. We reject his sovereignty. We resist his influence in our lives. We attempt to dethrone him. And Father, the truth is that outside of his kingdom is only death, is only chaos, is only destruction. But Lord, under your rule, under your mighty, powerful, and welcoming arm, there is peace. There is an assurance, O Lord, that no accusation from anyone, from Satan himself, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Because you have said, O Lord, that your steadfast love will not depart us. So Father, would you give us eyes to see, to ask the question, who is this King of glory? To ask the following question, what is man that you are mindful of us? Fill our hearts with humility, Father. Fill our eyes with the visions of your grandeur. Give us the ability to respond faithfully as loyal subjects of your kingdom. Help us enjoy the the life-giving water that you provide through your spirit. Help us resist sin when it comes. Help us, Lord, fight the anarchy of our own hearts. We want to rule ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. And those roads lead to death. Oh, Father, help us trust you. Help us look to this man, David, who trusted you. And Lord, help us follow his example. He was never far from you. He came and he came and he came again to you. He expressed his need and devotion to you. And as painful as the consequence of sin in his life were, He threw himself at your feet. Lord, help us be like him. And help us see the work of Christ in his life. 
We're going to sing a song, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's go and stand together. My Redeemer's love is deeper than the depths of sin and hell. He who was enthroned in glory came to bring us to Himself. My Redeemer's love is wider than the down into my darkness He alone has power to save He alone Deeper than the rolling seas Higher than the mountain peaks Your love is all
contract, God, because you made the contract, Lord, you provide for us, Lord, you provide the, the power and the authority behind that contract, Lord, not us, Lord, we trust in you, God, we trust in your ability to sustain us and to prov- provide for us, God, and to forgive us and to see us through your own son's blood and obedience, Lord, so, Lord, we trust in you. Lord, help us to trust in you and your finished work this week, we pray. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen.